where people say, well, basically this, the, the overwhelming tone in those quotes is, well, how dare you? I mean, there are some decisions that are so sacred, so important, that they can only be decided on an individual level. Oh, okay. Hang on, we got to which <laughs> another response might, might be, there are some that are so sacred, so important, that they cannot be decided on a merely individual level. Yeah, so actually, say that one more time. But, hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. Let's talk about Nancy Pelosi's little snafu with, oh, the Catholic Church. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, you either laugh or cry. You either laugh. We're or... going to laugh, I think. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to begin with a quotation and then hand it over to you, Nathan. But essentially, if you haven't been paying attention to this particular story, it is really fascinating. Nancy Pelosi has been officially denied communion at her church by the Arch Archbishop of California, Salvador Cordillon. And I'm going to give you a quote from, from Cordillon here, basically spelling out his, his reasons. And I think we can, we can, there are so many, my mind is just racing. There's, there are so many interesting items here, but here's a direct quote. After numerous attempts to speak with her, to help her understand the grave evil she is perpetrating, the scandal she is causing, and the danger to her own soul she is risking, I have determined that the point has come in which I must make a public declaration that she is not to be admitted to Holy Communion unless and until she publicly repudiate her support for abortion rights and confess and receive absolution for her cooperation in this evil in the sacrament of penance." End quote. And by the way, I think I'd, I'd feel duty-bound to include this for you. Under abortion rights, he has rights in scare quotes, by the way. So he's taking no prisoners here in this declaration. Nathan, you have another quote yeah, that I okay. think forms an interesting contrast. <laughs> okay, well, all right. So, yeah, so the context of the quotes that I came up with in response to this have to do with the fact that um, I don't know how long we would have to go back in history for the thing that he just wrote to be extremely normal. And this is a standard part of the Catholic Church's response to politicians on all sorts, uh, other parts of the country as well. Um, so this is the Catholic Church being extremely consistent on living up to what they believe and doing what they've done for who knows how long. Um, Cameron and I are not Catholic and probably won't ever become Catholic, but we can still comment on this by saying this is the Catholic Church being the Catholic Church. So the last thing that anybody should be is surprised. However, <laughs> that's not the time in which we live. And so um, I, I have two, I, I got to decide which order to put these quotes in. Um, all right, I'm going to start with Whoopi Goldberg though. Because, you know, the great theologian, Whoopi <laughs> Goldberg. So, so she comes to the defense of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and her quote is, is this, quote, This is not your job, dude. You can't. That's not up to you to make that decision. Which is hilarious because that literally is the guy's job. Is it to is make literally that his job. So, <laughs> yeah, dude, it's not up to you. Uh, no, that's kind of how the Catholic Church works there. But then you have... Um, what is this? Senator Durbin, where's he from? Is he Illinois? Yeah, Senator Dick Durbin. Um, he spoke out saying it's 
he's talking about that this is essentially a personal choice. And so his his line is that some matters can only be decided by the individual, not by, quote, not by some bishop's conscience. And you you, you can just, I, I don't, I mean, this is so interesting. That it's hard to know which way to go with it. But basically you have radical individualism up against church authority. What else am I missing yeah. there? So dude, it's not your job, or this isn't about some bishop's personal conscience. First of all, it's not the bishop's personal conscience. It's the entire teaching of the institution of the Catholic Church. So there's that. And then B, I'm pretty sure to be Catholic means that your individual choice is not on the top of the hierarchical list of the decision-making schematic. So help me out there, Cameron. Am I missing something, or is this just funny? Well, I no. mean, it's not the whole thing is not no, funny. It's very serious yeah. in a spiritual sense, but the response to it cracks me up. Well, what's funny is what you first pointed out there. This may this this you know Archbishop's response. It may look radical, but that if we hear those words that he gave as radical, that's a symptom of our age. They could not be more conventional. I mean, they are so. It's just bordering on basic humdrum. I mean, it is literally the Catholic Church simply being the Catholic Church. You are well, so, right so, that on the face so, of it, the most, yeah. I was going to say, so surprise here is, is a statement of historical and theological ignorance, not of something that's shockingly right. new. No, no, nothing shockingly new. But so radical individualism versus the authority of the church. I think that's the most immediate conflict that we are confronting here. And you see how deeply entrenched that individualism is, where people say, well, basically this, the the overwhelming tone in those quotes is, well, how dare you? I mean, there are some decisions that are so sacred, so important, that they can only be decided on an individual level. To which... <laughs> Another oh, okay. response might, might be, gotta... there are some that are so sacred, so important, that they cannot be decided on a merely individual level. <laughs> but yeah, so there, actually, there's say also, that one more yeah. time. Say that, repeat that, repeat that, because I think that is an interesting concept. Well, we, we that... our default is to say there are some, yeah, there's some decisions that are so important, so sacred, so encompassing that they can only be decided on an individual level. But the precise opposite would be true. Some would say, no, there are some that are so important, so significant, and so, you know, pervasive and all-encompassing that they cannot be decided on a merely individual level. Yeah, so here's something I'm wrestling with, is what is the, what is the biggest, big isn't really the right word here, what's the largest category, the largest meaningful category that is purely defined by the individual. And so I think, you know, not, not to get sidetracked here, but I'm 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 cautious of of like let's bring in say choosing your own pronoun. Is that actually an individual? Like is myself to what degree is my self-definition not communal? And I'm not saying that's one way or the other. I'm I'm just working yeah. through this in my mind to think yep. are the most meaningful things that implicate me in relationship with other humans whether that be communal or institutional individual i so I, I i so i think this is where the real rubber is hitting the road or the real wrench in the gears maybe is a better better phrase here of like figuring out 
what is the most meaningful thing that is only individually selected? I think it's a really How's important that for question an you're asking. Question? No, I think it's really important. So I think let's make a let's make an important distinction here from from the start. So individualism is getting a bad rap a lot these days, and it should, because we are radical individualists, and it is incredibly destructive and destructive in many instances. But let's let's look at a good instance of individualism. Individualism is good if it is directed toward the intrinsic value and worth of each person, every person, no matter their social station, their ethnic background, their capabilities, every person. So that's, an, that's a case of individualism in its best sense. That kind of individualism is going to be an instrumental philosophical underpinning of abolitionism, for instance. So that's good. Or maybe our but constitution now, let, in general. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. Endowed with certain unalienable rights. Absolutely. So that's good. But you have to have a proper understanding of individualism in the first place for that to work. That only works if you understand what a person actually is. And a person as a completely atomistic, discrete, individual, social unit is a total fantasy. That is not a person. There is no such thing as a purely atomistic, discrete individual, right? Un unconnected. Every You as a human being are unimaginable apart from relationships. You can't even know yeah, so yourself. You can't come into the world apart from that. You can't even know yourself apart from the eyes and viewpoints of other people. So... If you understand human beings in those kind of healthy communal terms and you understand individualism, if you fix individualism within that assumption, then I think you're okay. If you're thinking in radical terms, then you're going to go off the rails. Yeah. So you've you've articulated my the problem of my question well, um, but I still haven't made any progress on it. So I guess... Are we saying that there is no is there there's no hmm, you have to help me word this. So individually made meaning is never allows for true community in some sense. There is no so individually made meaning in the purest sense. It's not possible. No more no more possible than a purely private language is possible. This is getting really abstract, but that There you go. Yeah. So you, that's you, that's the best way to put it. Yeah. You can't do that because again, you never live in a vacuum. You're always any kind of culture or subculture or that you exist in always there there are inescapably communal aspects. You're you're a relational creature. So that that kind of pure individualism is an illusion, but it leads to some really seriously disastrous decisions. And here, I mean, the other salient factor, I think, in this case, isn't just radical individualism versus church authority. I think that's one of the biggest. But the other one is the widespread disbelief in the church, in the spiritual world. So, oh, yeah, because he's in pointing old, to a danger that I mean, she probably doesn't see. Yeah, so I, that and that's exactly what I wanted to point out. What does he say here? He look and the one one section of that quote that's really that's going to be again. It's it sounds radical to modern audiences. There's nothing radical about it, but he says he warns about the danger to her own soul she is risking. 
Well, what's he talking about there? Well, ultimately, he's talking about damnation. Now, what even the word damnation sounds so incredibly ancient and archaic and foreign, but it isn't for this priest. He sees it as a very real spiritual danger and and totally a reality. And so, but the problem is most of us, and frankly, many of us in the church don't really believe the spiritual life is real. Think about that story. I've told it a few times that Stanley Hauerwas gives. It's very helpful where he says, look, what would you do if you went to a seminary and everybody said, well, I don't really feel like studying all this rigorous theology, especially, you know, Hebrew and Greek, and especially don't want to dive into all this Christology. I'd rather take counseling and psychology courses. Well, we actually reward that sometimes. We say, well, that's all right. Okay. Yeah, do that. But what if you went into a medical school and you were confronted with a bunch of students who said, you know what, I just, all this anatomy is a drag. I don't want to memorize all this stuff. I'd rather take some psychology courses. Okay, you know. No, we'd say, no, you either study this stuff or you ship out. Why? Because we think doctors can actually hurt us. We don't think that spiritual leaders can really hurt us. Of course they can. We know they can. We're living in a moment where we're seeing so much hurt inflicted by spiritual leaders. And it takes sometimes an extreme crisis to wake us up to the spiritual realities of abuse and misuse. And that's what this bishop is pointing to. The spiritual, li- the spiritual world is absolutely real. And the problem is we often don't think it is. And in practice, we don't think it is. And so we, we, we see something, a story like this, and we think, oh my goodness, well, how invasive of him. How how repressive and just, you know, how could he how could he deny her on the communion of you know on communion on the basis of of this kind of deeply important important personal choice? Well, so yeah, so Co- I think that's that another with, point of conflict. Yeah, but yeah, so one one layer deeper before we start to spiral ourselves out of this is that last time I checked in San Francisco, it's voluntary to join the Catholic Church. So this isn't like some sort of standards that's been inflicted upon her from the outside in. You know, I've, I often laugh. My brother talks about coaching track and then the kids that are surprised that he's going to make them run on the first day of practice. It's like, you just joined a track team. <laughs> what did you think was going to happen? on the Like, you're going to run. You just joined the Catholic Church. What yep. did you think? I, I mean, are you surprised on the Catholic Church's stance on abortion? So I don't know. It's kind of like, hey, if you poke that well, snake in the head, it's going to bite you. It did. It does. Okay, we're surprised. No, actually, that's just what happens. Well, the but the modern assumption is that we sh- we need to remake everything in our image, and so I think the the kind of assumption of the Nancy Pelosi's and her supporters is the Catholic Church needs to get with it, needs to update its curriculum, so to speak, right. and yeah. adapt to the modern world. And the Catholic Church is such an interesting barometer of this tension with the modern world because you you see this ancient tradition deeply rooted coming into such drastic and radical conflict with our our biggest assumptions for just doing what it's always done and i that's why this is one of those cases where you i mean it really is pretty fascinating i mean the only other example I can think of that comes close to that, to capturing that tension 
is the monarchy in certain nations, like Great Britain, for instance. But it is really an assumption that we, we basically just think everything should adapt to accommodate our cultural climate. But again, but what's interesting there is you you see that culture or cultural orthodoxy is seen as ruling the roost rather than the orthodoxy of the church. And I think that's what Nancy Pelosi well, but, expects. That cultural or- orthodoxy. Yeah, but that's ones. a switch. That's a switch because if you look at American history and the severe paranoia of having Catholic politicians and leaders, it historically was that the church would control the way that they acted politically. Right. I mean, Yep. Go back and read our history, and and that's the fear of Catholics in power or even on the Supreme Court. I think we've seen stuff that points to that, oh, within the last several years. Um, so it's just interesting that there's this flip here of which orthodoxy trumps the other. Is it a cultural orthodoxy, yep. or is it mm-hmm. the Catholic Church's institutional tradition and uh, structure there? So and it's, I, I guess I it's maybe the- interesting because where do we see other factors of— reality where politicians bump up against an authority higher than themselves in public. Yeah, I mean, and I think Nancy Pelosi would, and I certainly don't know this for sure, but I I suspect she would bristle at the notion that I'm getting at, that she's, that basically for her, the status quo is trumping all spiritual authority. But if we spell it out in very naked terms, that seems to be precisely what's happening here. I think she would say, no, no, I'm, I'm, I want to, I am for what is, I, I'm making my decisions for deeply moral reasons. And this is just to complicate this a little bit. People, people don't gravitate toward their positions, by the way, because they want to occupy some ultimate, you know, some rebel, purely rebellious or villainous position. Usually they're doing it because they think it's the right thing. So I don't doubt that she thinks that she's doing the right thing, but I think she's at a point of profound confusion, and this and this conflict right here has revealed that profound confusion for us. Radical well, individualism on the one hand, discrediting of the spiritual the reality of the spiritual life. I don't think she do you think let me ask you this, Nathan. This is unfairly speculative, but do you think Nancy Pelosi is worried about the well being of her soul? Okay, so what I think is happening without no, is the short answer, but the, the rounded off answer uh, to, to get there is to say what we're seeing here is the conflict between our faith being a purely private matter and the way it interacts with our public life. So when you have a politician whose public life reputation and platform runs into conflict with a religious belief, if you have the assumption that our religious beliefs and practices only apply to our private lives— sparks will fly when those things yeah. smash into each other in public platforms. So I think per- perhaps, and I'm I'm hesitant to say that this, oh, okay, I'm not hesitant to say, this is not a Nancy Pelosi issue. This is an every single Christian yeah. in every single category issue of what you believe privately is not merely private. And there are categories in life where that will deeply conflict with what you feel like you need to do publicly. And we, I mean, we can't be mocking of one lady here. This is a, a serious issue that's inflicted humanity from. I, so I don't know. It's just that the 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 whole like private religion thing and public persona thing being two different things is becoming increasingly difficult 
I think to oh, hold absolutely. those two things. Uh, yeah. Well, and then there's also the issue of authority is going to be inevitable. So isn't it interesting, for instance, that this archbishop's authority is laughed at by many of us, but what is what is Whoopi Goldberg doing with her platform? She's flexing her cultural cultural muscles. She is speaking as an authority, and for many, the, the spiritual authority, this is going to sound funny, the spiritual authority of a Whoopi Goldberg trumps that of this archbishop. Because again, we're but we're in a cultural moment that has you know celebrates expressive individualism, and which which we, would maybe be why you could refer yep. to an archbishop as dude. Yes, I mean so much of that is just yeah bespeaks that kind of that that view, where I mean yeah nothing is truly sacred apart from really the altar of individual choice. And so all the people who represent that speak with greater cultural authority. So one way to bring it back home to what you were saying, Nathan, and this I, I suspect this will be challenging to hear. How do you, first of all, do you have anybody who, who you would recognize as a spiritual authority in your life? And if so, how do you respond to their instructions? Especially if they tell you something yeah, and, you don't want to hear. And what boundaries do you put on your communion in the in the yeah. church or the group that you work? Because this is not a Catholic idea. This comes straight out of the second half of First Corinthians chapter eleven. So this is not like no. some cat so, something that's unique to Catholic theology. Paul's warning about examining yourself and not taking the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner and eating and drinking judgment on yourself, that's not Catholicism. That's mm -hmm. straight out of the New Testament. So anybody who's part of any church needs to think through exactly what that means uh, and live that out. So just wanted to throw that in there. But if, We're not really talking about just well, Catholicism. Yeah. It's just in this case we are. But again, if you, if you don't, if you basically tacitly assume that the spiritual life is largely irrelevant or not even real, then... You're not going to approach communion with any kind of real gravi gravity. You'll just think, "Oh no, this is just one of those, you know, many, you know, privately meaningful ceremonies and rituals rituals that we go through." But Paul's wording in yeah in the second half of first first Corinthians is going to it's going to strike an odd note for you then because you're going to think, "Wait, he's he's talking about this in terms of matters of life and death and matters of life after death too." I mean, these are very serious terms to just describe this you know, fun little ritual. It's not just a fun little ritual. But again, if you don't think the spiritual life is real, then that's how you could see it. But if you are a committed Christian, you know that isn't true, and that the spiritual life is absolutely real, and that the well-being of your soul is a very real salient factor. And so there is such a thing as grave spiritual danger. There is. That is not something that is purely ancient. That is not something that is restricted to the Salem witch trials at all. We need to hear that because so often we we slip into the very modern mindset, I think, that we're talking about right here. Yeah. What's the I mean, where do you see other cultural examples of somebody being denied something for their own good? Yeah, that's a something I will have to 
think I mean, on so it's it's rare almost even to see that in parenting anymore. <laughs> Sometimes you're in public spaces, like mm. <laughs> there. So that that because I think that plays into the question you're asking about broader authority and what authority are we under? Who could deny you something for your own good and you think that that's okay? Well, well and does, denying I, I, somebody so I'm, could. I'm, 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 I'm just saying yep. that's another feature of the cultural of individualism that denial is never good. Right. I mean, obviously, when you're faced with your kids asking you for something, there are certain instances where giving them what they want is not going to be good for them, but it will shut them up. And I think the impulse often <laughs> yeah. is to go with convenience. Sp- spoken from experience. Yeah, spoken for yeah. Did you hear? Did you hear some some sort of strain in my tone there? But that's I think so. I think there's a strong impulse to choose convenience over conviction. But deny so in that case, give it to them; they'll be quiet. Or you withhold for their for their own good, and you will experience a little bit of a prolonged discussion. The discussion may turn somewhat shrill. Then the same principle applies here. Look, it would be a dereliction of this bishop's duty to serve communion to somebody who is in unrepentant sin. And by the way, denial of communion is certainly is not limited to the Catholic Church either. And maybe you've been in a church setting where you've experienced this where there's been a certain person who has been denied communion. Maybe this maybe this is you. And again, this is just to point out that can be a very it's so galling to us because we just we think only in terms of consumer as consumers usually. And sadly, we bring that same consumer mindset into our congregations. And so we think, no, this is here to meet. These people are here to meet my needs. These people are here to serve me. The church is here to dispense spiritual goods and services. That is absolute nonsense. It is there to do no such thing. It is there for you to gather together and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And that truth part is absolutely pivotal. And so it is absolutely the job of those who are spiritual leaders to carry that spiritual authority properly and to administer it properly. Yeah. Let me give you the the flip side and another way of thinking about this that would maybe be a more extreme way that this has been done in the past, but I think points out the flip side of the beauty of a non-individualistic approach to some of this. So... Um, it's not the case anymore, but in the history of the denomination that I'm a part of, this is certainly true of the church that my mom grew up in. There was communion and love feast once, twice a year, um, including a meal and foot washing, the whole John 13 thing laid right out. And the deacons visited every single member of the congregation in their homes beforehand to check in with them, see how they're doing, and make sure that they were still um, valuing and affirming and walking faithfully with the Lord and in compliance with what the church understood to be uh, the best way to live out you know, their Christ-like convictions collectively as a community. So it was a personal mm-hmm. visit to your house from the church leadership to say, hey, are we good? Is there any friction here? Is there stuff that needs to be sorted out? Where are you at? Now, I think most of us say that is incredibly invasive. Um, could you imagine that level of um, checking in on you spiritually before you came to communion? On the other hand, let's imagine that you then walked into a room with several hundred other people 
who had all gone through that. And you would therefore know without a doubt that every single person in that room affirmed the exact same things, believed the same things, was on the same page, and that any personal tensions between any members in that room had already been sorted out and worked through. Very few of us have an experience of that type of unity collectively anywhere at any time. And so, yes, mm. there's a high degree in which it does feel invasive to say, hey, are we all on the same page? But the flip side of that is the incredible freedom that comes collectively as a community when you can do that well, you can work through your differences and say, okay, we're all on the same page here as we come before the Lord. That's a, it's, it's just a very, very different thing than I think what people think is possible. And so, yeah, there's some limitations to that for sure, but being intentional about the collective meaning that we all participate in, not the individual meaning that we create, yeah. sets us up to have rich enough community that it actually not only changes our lives, it probably changes the world. And so that's the, the shift here of this individual meaning-making thing. I think Cameron nailed it when he said individual meaning-making is, is a like it doesn't even exist. It doesn't even make sense. But there's an invitation to participation in a church identified as the family of God that we're invited into. And when we participate in a pre-existing meaning, as it were, there's a depth of unity and collective communion there, not only with the Lord, but with each other. That is a fascinating thing that transcends all of our cultures and politics and race and everything else that the end of Scripture gives us a, a picture into of what's possible for the future of humanity. So we can, I think, laugh at some of these things that we see pop up in culture, but we can also flip that back around and use it as a moment of self-examination and reflection for ourselves as we think about the degrees to which we're willing to participate in something bigger than ourselves. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.